A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Oliver Wiseman, CapEx's editor. Brexit is at an impasse. Cabinet still can't agree on what the UK's future relationship with the EU should look like. A hung parliament means that whatever the government agrees, a majority of MPs could take a different view, scuppering the whole process. But with the Brexit countdown clock ticking, a crucial series of votes on the EU withdrawal bill just around the corner, and a council meeting at the end of June, Theresa May is running out of time. To help break the deadlock, Open Europe, a think tank that is home to some of the smartest thinking on UK-EU relations, this week published its blueprint for a deal that is a workable compromise in what is a fraught Brexit debate. For a special Brexit edition of the Free Exchange podcast, I spoke to Open Europe's director, Henry Newman, about their proposal for a pragmatic deal with the EU, as well as why the good ship Brexit has drifted so badly off course. Henry Newman, it's less than a year until we leave the EU. Open Europe's just published a, a proposal for our f- sort of future relationship with the EU. My first question is, how surprised are you that, you know, given that it's under a year until we leave, we're still having this debate about what are fairly kind of fundamental questions about our relationship? I think it's, it's very surprising and it's, it's also worrying. Um, I think we, we've been, I was looking back through previous things I'd written and it's been well over a year that uh, I been saying and lots of others have obviously been saying as well that we need to have a clearer idea of the government's plan and to know where that's going and obviously they won't get everything they ask for because it's a negotiation but equally they need to have an idea of their desired end state. I understand the pressures on the Prime Minister and I understand that the uh, the hung parliament um, and the divisions over Brexit within the cabinet are making her life harder that's all true but ultimately we do need to get together around a plan and that's what we were trying to do with our paper. It was explicitly a compromise position which we think also has merits in of itself but it's something that wouldn't appeal probably to either extreme of the Brexit division. Uh, but we are hopeful that it can find a sort of centre ground of support and it's it seems to be getting some of that. And, and just to, to talk about the kind of intransigence, do you think that's a product of just the parliamentary arithmetic or do you think that's about these kind of two extreme, these two hardline views and, 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 and the extent to which they just won't budge on? I think the parliamentary arithmetic has made it obviously a lot worse. Uh, it means that the Conservative Party only has a working majority by um, aligning with the DP, and that working majority is extremely small, and that makes it very difficult. Um, and this is also something, Brexit in general, that people have very strongly held views on. Um, and those views have probably got uh, even stronger, bizarrely, since the referendum in many cases. Not in all cases. I think some people have... Uh, changed their mind and and moved on but some people haven't and have really sort of doubled down on their previous 
positions at either end of the debate. I think there's another issue, though, which is slightly separate to the parliamentary mass, and that's that the government's reluctance to come together around a clear plan is worrying people, including on the, uh, the sort of perhaps the more extreme Remain side of the parliamentary party, the Conservative parliamentary party. And that's meaning that while some people like, told me privately at the start of the year that they were not really interested in Brexit and wanted to move on, I've noticed they're becoming more and more involved in potential parliamentary rebellions. And I think some of that is just because they smell the absence of a plan from the government. And if the government had a direction and a vision, even if it wasn't one that they were 100% behind, they could you know, uh, at least have the confidence that there was a, there was a, there was, um, a clearly thought through process. Yeah, we, we ran some pieces on, on, on CapEx at the end of last year, basically uh, making this point that, that we sort of basically know what Brexit's going to look like in broad brushstrokes. Now we can just let them get on with it. And um, I think this so far this year we've been, we've been proved um, badly wrong on that one. Uh, so let's move on to the to sort of filling, filling the void uh, is the Open Europe uh, proposal. Um, maybe we should start by just if you wanted to sketch out kind of what yeah, your... absolutely. But just to say, pick up one small thing on uh, what you just said. I mean, I think it's obviously true the government hasn't been clear enough about their plans. Like, yes, I think that's... It's very, and they need to be clearer. But also, we do know roughly where we're heading. So it's... it's you know, we know that we're going to land somewhere but on, on a spectrum between Canada and Norway. Now, obviously, that's a large spectrum and there's a lot to decide within that. But we know that we're leaving the European Union. The government's position is to leave the customs union and the single market. Uh, so I think, you know, we do have some idea. So the sort of the EU side, which continually saying we have no clue what the government wants is is also an exaggeration. But, but, but uh, just, sorry, just, just yeah. come back on that. It, that, that we have, some, we have a clear view of what the government wants um, and the parameters of the um, negotiation. What we don't, uh, but I do think all of this um, stasis it has brought more extreme options back onto the table that seemed far less plausible before. I mean... Completely agree. Uh, a second referendum seems still pretty far-fetched, but not as far-fetched as it did six months ago. Um, ditto, no-deal Brexit, um, I would say. I mean, we're talking about going up from like 2% to 7% in my, in, my, in my sort of way I think about it. But, but nonetheless, I, I do think that is, there's a wider range of outcomes than there were six months ago. I think that's right. But I think it also, the, yeah, the government... None of this takes away from the fact the government just needs to make a decision and mm -hmm. move on. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's so. What, what to, go, to come to our yeah, paper? Let's, let's go to the um, what we were trying to say is that um, we started by looking originally at the, the, the original intention was to look at the, the look into the Norway option, uh, the EEA arrangement uh, with EFTA, and then go across to uh, a Canada-style free trade deal. But also to look at other agreements that the EU has signed. So we looked at the Ukraine Association Agreement. Uh, we looked at the Swiss uh, complex relationship with the EU. Um, and we also looked at some agreements that countries had while they were joining the EU during the accession process. Um, and won't surprise anybody listening to this to know that, of course, there is no single model for the EU's relationship with a third country. Uh, and we tried to point to different precedents that we could use um, in our future relations uh, and also looked at our own economy and the structure of our trade. And it may be that some people would like to use Brexit as an opportunity to totally redefine our trade and move to a much more global position. But that's not where uh, where the country is now. And I'm not sure that's where the parliamentary party or the public support would be. Uh, so you know, we, we recognise that the EU is our largest market on goods. Uh, and, then, and our services trade is uh, much more globally orientated. And we also recognise that many of our fastest growing goods industries are in the most highly regulated sectors. And those industries often have supply chains that 
that crisscross um, Europe and parts and finished products move backwards and forwards between different countries. So we, and we also obviously uh, know that even if we left the European Union without a deal, many of those suppliers would continue to make products at European regulatory standards because they'd want to sell into the European uh, markets. So from all that, we, we essentially arrived at the argument that we should align our goods regulations with those of Europe. We should maintain the existing acquis and that future regulations should be aligned with Europe. Now, that will obviously mean that we'd become, to some extent, a rule taker on goods, which will be unpopular with certain people. But that's still outside of the single market or the customs union? We're formally outside of the single market, but like Switzerland or the Ukraine, uh, both, in some respects, participate in the single market. So they're technically non-members but have participation. Uh, We don't think that should come with free movement, um, but it should allow us to, as far as possible, trade goods with the EU without regulatory checks so that our regulatory agencies could certify goods as ready compliant with the EU. And we know that, of course, if we're a third country, it would be open to Parliament to uh, decide not to apply a new European regulation on goods. For example, if the European Union came up with a particularly egregious rule around driverless cars designed to destroy uh, the sort of nascent British driverless cars or AI industries, then that might be very difficult for Parliament, Mm -hmm. and they could try and turn it down. Um, And that would have to be a process of sort of discussion with the EU, which I, could, yeah. could affect things. And that sort of thing happens in other countries, doesn't it? I mean, Absolutely. Switzerland, I think they have these periodic fallings out with the EU and yeah. they negotiate their way and, around and, them. And so the Swiss deal um, has, a, has a guillotine uh, clause within it so that it could, it, if, if they fundamentally don't come to an agreement, it could pull the entire house down. Mm-hmm. But what's tended to happen, for example, the Swiss and the EU got in a, a long-running spat over free movement, um, and rather than actually pulling down the entire agreement, the Swiss were kicked out of a program for a year. Uh, so th- th- yeah, th- there's a way of handling these things. Um, and I think it would actually give us some degree of flexibility, but also would recognize that goods are only a fifth of our economy. They're not, uh, it's, it's an important part of our trade. And our trade is obviously still very orientated with Europe. Um, but it's not the lion's share of actually where our wealth is coming from. Um, and even... In, in the case of the car industry, it might be nice to imagine making cars with uh, NAFTA countries, but uh, Mexico and the United States and Canada are quite a long way away. Uh, and there's mm-hmm. obviously geography does matter to a degree with trade in a way that it doesn't with services. And then to come to services, this is, as, as I said, 80% of our economy. Um, and the single market in services has always been far less complete than it is in the case of goods. And that's been a long-standing British concern to try and improve that. But we have to look at the, the reality and it's, it's not particularly uh, complete other than really for certain industries like financial services. But even for financial services, just 37% of our exports in financial services go to the EU. So even the area where the single market is most complete, we're, we're still very global in our trade. And we think that we agree with the Bank of England and Mark Carney that we're too big a country to be a rule taker on financial services. For all those people who argue that one of the things that we were able to do as members in Brussels was sit around the table and improve the rules and regulations and stop bad rules and regulations, those people need to recognize that if we don't have that seat around the table, we would be bound by rules that we couldn't shape, including very bad ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think our view on services that services is that we need to diverge and we need to therefore manage that divergence. Mm-hmm. And that's our sort of hybrid approach. Right. And, and to sort of Two further points to pick up is this involves an outcome where Britain has its own trade policy, an independent trade policy, and um, three things actually. Free movement of people uh, will end. Uh, Crucially, I mean, that's clearly a 
red line um, in the eyes of the British people. Uh, and finally, you don't have, when it comes to, I suppose it's one of the thornier bits, but when it comes to the goods side of things, you're talking about regulations specifically relating to goods rather than this like level playing field stuff. So the e, under your plan, the EU can't say to Britain, you cannot change your labor laws and become more competitive um, because that's unfair. Um, yeah. So I think uh, on trade policy, first of all, we're saying we should be outside of the customs union. Um, now, that will inevitably entail some degree of friction on the border, and that friction will have to be managed. Um, and But it's also worth recognizing that the main checks that actually need to happen at the border are agricultural food checks. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, that regulatory being in regulatory alignment would remove the necessity for a lot of checks. There would still need to be checks on uh, tariffs and rules of origin and other things like VAT, but we believe those would be much easier to handle if we were in regulatory and those, alignment. And those are the sorts of things that are easily more easily done away from the border, I, I think, as I understand. Right, so there's already a concept of bonded warehouses, right. which are essentially spaces that are kind of almost extraterritorial in terms of customs sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not the best way of explaining it, but, the, no, no, but yeah, no. but I think they... they uh, allow you to, this is already something that happens, to bring in products from outside the EU um, and to pay the duties later. And if you talk to uh, exporters and importers, our chairman, Lord Wolfson, is the chief executive of Next, obviously a firm that does a lot of that. Uh, and what an argument he made in the in an FT article this week was that uh, they're able to clear the uh, most of the customs checks in transit electronically so this is not if, if it's well managed and cust- companies know their inventories then it shouldn't necessarily be a problem to come to your question on free movement the uh, w- we we think that is that does have to be a red line for the government that was a clear um, centerpiece of the of the referendum um, and i think it would be impossible for the government to agree to a brexit deal that didn't end free movement um, now some will say that the eu will hate that because of the cherry picking and whatever else uh, and it's obviously the case that Switzerland does have to quite a large degree free movement, although not completely yet. But it's also true that the EU is essentially allowing the Ukraine to participate in elements of the single market without free movement. And some will say, well, why would the EU want to give Britain a deal that you know, does breaks the elements of the, of, the, of the single market and allows it to cherry pick? And it, it may be that they won't. But I think we can also turn that round and say that if you were from the Brussels side of the table, you could point out, well, look... Uh, Britain is, Britain is still going to be able to sell products into the single market in goods, but they're going to have to follow all of our rules. Mm-hmm. So they'll be able to say, look, you know, they're a rule taker on goods. And on services, they'll be able to say, well, look, they've lost their right to automatically sell in services. It's the commission that has to determine now whether or not their standards are equivalent. Mm-hmm. So I think from their kind of main strategic perspective of making the case that uh, being a non-member is not the same or is not as good as a member, they'll be able to do that on their terms. Um, and then finally, just on, on that free movement thing, if you look at Ivan Rogers's big speech to uh, Glasgow University, one of the points that he made was that really the referendum, the, the negotiation is going to come down to a question of whether the EU will be willing to separate out goods, uh, single market and free movement. And he didn't say they wouldn't. He sort of argued that was, a, as I that was the it, key. That was the key question. And on level playing field, uh, the idea that the EU would want to have a say over our future uh, taxation rules and, and employment rules and uh, environmental standards. We think that this is something that we can't give up. We can't be a just as we can't be a rule taker on services, which is such a large proportion of our economy. We can't be a rule taker on our wider economic rules, and therefore the. But it's easy, so just on that, it's easy to see how, uh, even if you were going into this negotiation on much better terms than 
the two sides are now. It's easy to see how that question of like where, cost, where, where goods regulation ends and, and level playing field stuff starts is quite a tr- that is quite a tricky, that is quite a thorny issue, isn't it? Yes, um, and I think the EU will want to have the confidence uh, that we're not about to suddenly deregulate our entire economy and, uh, and you know, some people just imagine this idea of a sort of Singapore on the Thames. Um, the Mad Max, this is the Mad Max Brexit or whatever the... Or yeah, that and obviously some different? of that has, I think, uh, yeah, I think that there, there are many people who can argue cogently about the attractions of, uh, of deregulation and something that open Europe has looked at in the past. But I don't see that there's actually a political mandate for them, that at the moment, nor is it really deliverable in Parliament. And I think the government could consider making some non-regression commitments, but they can't allow the EU to have future control over huge elements of our economy. So I think, and that's partly also what we're arguing in this piece, that there are diminishing returns for asking for more and more and more. So you can give up some degree of control over goods and get a good degree of access to the EU single market on goods. But if you ask for much more, for example, uh, the the Treasury wants to have a mutual recognition on services agreement, something the EU has basically never agreed, to do that would require you to give up so much more in terms of level playing field that it suddenly becomes very, very unattractive. And that's our broader concern. So I think it's better to bank something which is... The goof, less is more in this situation. Banker kind of a deal that gives business certainty rather than insisting you go all the way. And I think just on that point, one thing that's missed a lot in this Brexit debate is is actually these things can be revisited. So it's, there's nothing to stop on that point about um, services. There's nothing to stop that as a single market in services sort of matures. There's nothing to stop a deal down the line on that area right i mean the, yeah i guess your focus is about something that works in the time frame we're talking about so we were explicitly clear that uh whatever negotiation um whatever wherever we get to in the negotiation we will probably have to revisit the relationship over time uh, i think in fact one of the biggest relationship uh, one of the biggest uh, risks in this in this negotiation overall is that because the uk has made uh, tactical errors and because of the intransigence of the commission and the sort of stubbornness of uh of Brussels, the UK could be pushed into a position that isn't sustainable in the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, parliamentary rebellions and so on could exacerbate that further. And I think that the, the danger from the, for the member states is that this all then unwinds again in a few years' time. Now, there'll be, there's an argument that we're going to have to revisit this periodically. And again, I think Ivan Rogers makes this point that we're never going to be truly shot of this. The question mm-hmm. of our relationship with Europe is always going to be one that uh, is evolving and it is a sort of political um, is, is on the political table. But I think there's a particular risk if we don't get it right and don't get something that sort of works for, you know, we, we need something that works for at least the medium term, even if we need to mm-hmm. revisit it per- periodically. And the main point about services versus goods and this, you know, the main EU criticism of, or objection to your proposal would be, as we discussed, this indivisibility of the freedoms and so on. Um, but your point, I guess, would just be that that's going to have to, that's basically going to be the case with any reasonable UK proposal so you've just got a that as a negotiating position that has to be the EU sort of the, sorry the UK is kind of well, yeah starting point so the UK um, and the EU relationship cannot be Norway um, and nor can it be Canada and it's be, uh, we've had a series of uh, member states um, heads of government including Emmanuel Macron and uh, Radcar and others saying that you know we need to have a bespoke relationship that recognises the, the geography of the UK and, and the size of the UK. Um, so we need something else. And I, I think, although I 
been very critical of the government for not having a plan. I don't think Brussels has a plan either. And I don't think the member states have a plan. The only person in Europe who's really got a plan about the future of Europe is President Macron. But other than that, it's quite hard to actually understand what does the Commission want. We know what they don't want, and they talk a lot about cherry-picking, ignoring the fact that many of their agreements do cherry-pick. And I, I mentioned at the start that we also looked at the accession agreements of various states. When the Czech Republic was joining the EU, uh, they progressively introduced free movement of goods and separated that from free movement of people. I mean, these, these, is, these are not carved in stone right. uh, on Mount Sinai. They are you know, sensible... Uh, sensible compromises can be made. And I think if you also... But just on yeah. that point, one of, one of, surely that's one of the really most frustrating things about the kind of stalemate is that it's kept the ball in Britain's court for so long. It hasn't forced the issue with, with Brussels, and, or, or not even with Brussels, but with heads of state, and, and sort of made the point and changed the dynamics of the negotiation. Instead, it's just this business of Brussels waiting to hear from us. Right, and also sort of, you know, everybody wants to solve the Irish border, but there's a degree of cop... Um, and horse uh, positioning in in the sense of trying to resolve an Irish border without knowing what the end state relationship right. is going to be like and create a you know, so I think we've we, yes ex exactly I think if we if we define some of this earlier on then the EU would be responding to it and member states could be listening but I, I don't think it's I think still think there's a space for doing this and we we know that the the negotiations aren't going to be done in March 2019 whatever happens they're going to be spilling over into the uh, so-called transition period or implementation period so. There is time to to work this out. It's still there. And I think if you if you imagine that through a, um, a freak accident of plate plate tectonics, an enormous economy like the UK's suddenly crashed uh, into crashed in sort of uh, plate tectonic terms into the uh, European landmass and was there with a high degree of inter integration and perfect alignment already in its regulations, then Europe would be, you know desperate to do a deal. That's mm -hmm. just so obviously the case. So I think from the European side, they need to think, would this be a deal that we'd be happy to... Could we live with this arrangement? Could we basically live with the UK taking our rules on goods and selling uh, their goods with, uh, under our regulations? I just don't see this as a problem. And I think it's also actually an attractive deal for them to be able to offer to other economies, like, for example, Turkey. Europe is not on the verge of wanting to have a free movement situation with Turkey, but would they want to have a free movement of goods with Turkey if it agreed to match Europe's regulatory standards? Perhaps. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. 
That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So um, let's, let's move on to uh, what's well, obviously all related, but to the um, imminent parliamentary showdown um, on this on this question, which is the um, the, re- the return of the EU withdrawal bill to the House of Commons on on Tuesday, obviously there are the fifteen Lords amendments um, that are causing the government something of a headache. Um, do you uh, what's just in terms of the small p politics of it? What's your read on how the government's going to fare in that debate? So I suspect that they'll they'll win the vast majority of the um, of the amendments, and uh, they've just I think just before we started recording made a concession that they'll now be debating it over two days okay. um, as an attempt to. Uh, mollify further some of the rebels. Obviously, the the margins are very, very tight, though. Uh, so every vote does count. Um, but I think you know we, we we need we need the clarity, and that includes in regular in in legislation terms. So we can't be in this position where we just don't get any legislation passed because the government is so afraid of losing a vote. Ultimately, if the government doesn't have a parliamentary uh, majority for its position, then it's going to have to shift its position. Um, including on the customs union. Now, I think that would be a mistake, and I think it'd be unsustainable. But I think we need to know what the what the uh, likely scenario yeah. is going to be, and we can't go on with a, a position where legislation is being held up uh, because the government is too afraid to uh, find out where the support really lies. And and how do you think Labour's um, kind of well was it really a change of stance on on Brexit or not? You know this uh, this announcement yesterday. Do you think that changes the debate next week um, particularly or? Uh, I'm not an expert on parliamentary procedure, but my understanding is that this essentially ensures that the the current Lords Amendment on the EEA won't pass, and therefore the government will be less bound um, uh, by that. And I think it's you know, but again, it's a kind of very clever signalling and positioning by Labour and Keir Starmer because it allows them to sign that they are heading and desirous of a soft Brexit without actually betraying anything, um, and they're able to sort of inv- pick up. Phrases that David Davis used, like a Brexit that delivers the exact same benefits, which is obviously by definition impossible. Um, if we're to leave the European Union, clearly it won't have the exact same benefits uh, as being a member. But they're able to sort of use that and construct a position which is deliberately ambiguous, um, but it's brilliant opposition politics. And I think that's what they were able to do with the customs union. And it's very hard to put them on a spot for a policy that they never have to to be tested because they're in opposition. And then the just to take the timeline further down. Um, down the road, um, the next step was supposed to be the big June, uh, end of June, I think, uh, summit um, of European leaders, which was a sort of deadline for Britain to have come up with some answers to the customs issue and also the Northern Ireland backstop. Mm. Um, do you think there's a prospect of that sort of deadline being reached in terms of cabinet having agreed? Uh, well, I think I just uh, was in Rusi listening to David Davis when he uh, said that they, they're not going to have Northern Ireland finalised in the June uh, council. And that really is putting a lot of pressure on the next council in October. Uh, unless there, there, is, there is a sort of further s- sessions scheduled, we are, you know, we are bouncing up against the time limits pretty quickly to, in, to, in, to ensure that it actually has time to go through uh, European Parliament and, uh, and the British Parliament. So I think it's, you know, this is... This is getting difficult. Um, if, if it wasn't already, um, and some of that, of course, is just the, the structure of the negotiations. I think it's a, a remain of the view that it was ludicrous to separate the negotiations into these two phases mm-hmm. and to try and uh, resolve money, Northern Ireland, and citizens' rights before going on to discussing the future. But you know, as as, as um, is often said in Whitehall, we are where we are, um, and that doesn't sort of absolve government of the. Uh, 
the necessity to actually come to a, a decision on what the backstop should look like. Uh, I think yeah, there's only really, you know, having committed to a backstop, there's only one real way that it could work for the UK, and that is to, um, for the UK as a whole, to remain in the elements of the single market and the customs union that relate to the all-Ireland economy, the Good Friday Agreement, um, and North-South cooperation. And that basically would mean alignment on goods and staying in at least a customs union for uh, for goods. And that's not a perfect scenario, but equally, it's uh, it's not a total um, disaster either. Um, and I think you know, we just need some clarity around that. And that might be difficult for the EU side to accept because they would be very against that sort of single uh, single market cherry picking as we were mm. discussing before. But that's a good example, I think, of, of the ways in which the government's just done such a bad job of winning the just the the politics of the negotiation. So on Ireland, it's entirely the UK's job to um, to act responsibly there and, and, and make sure it doesn't jeopardise uh, peace in Northern Ireland. Um, it's done such a bad job of rebutting those things and saying, you know, we're willing to do what, what, what we need to do. What, what about your side of the border, basically? Yes. Um, and it, it seems like everything's followed on from this sort of, this kind of acceptance of the, of the Brussels logic in terms of the, sort of terms of the debate even even and i'm not even talking about the specifics of, of, of the policies but just the, the basic framework of the debate is yeah, entirely in brussels favor exactly i think if you if you go on any negotiating course you'd be told to have a best alternative to a negotiated uh, position and also to make sure you've as far as possible can do the first drafts of every uh, of every document so you know they're responding to you not the other way around and we've um it sometimes feels like we fall at um not just the first hurdle but every hurdle um and i think the that's, that's all true. Um, and in the case of Ireland, I think the UK government has put up forward some proposals which are silly and some proposals which are sensible. But the problem is that they've all been shot down. Um, and at one level, of course, there are things that we can do to make the border easier. For example, aligning on goods would be make it a lot easier. Mm -hmm. But equally, the border is literally insoluble unless the other side also agrees that it can be solved. Like most borders. Right. Yeah. And, and exactly. I think part of the reason why this is... Um, People keep saying, "Well, where, where in the world offers an example?" Well, this is this is something of an unprecedented situation, um, and that was, I think, part of the reason why the backstop was originally agreed because it it is unprecedented, and people were highly conscious about the uh, geopolitical dynamics. But, it, but, on. but at the time of the backstop, you know, we we had people like the I think the head of Swiss Customs, and I think even a document produced by the European Parliament, basically saying there are loads of ways we can solve this problem, and and it should be fine. Um, you know, and, and and I only raise those to make the point that Britain has lost that battle to, in terms of the politics of that question. It's it's now become this kind of existential thing for Brexit, which arguably it shouldn't be. Yeah, I think that's um, a lot of that is is, is fair. The, um, the the question of sort of no physical infrastructure at the border has kind of been translated into no infrastructure and no checks of any possible right. sort, which would include, uh, you know, you in a, a company in um, in Belfast not wanting to file an electronic application for a customs uh, declaration to, to ship something to Dublin. I mean, that's just... So I think sensible commitments, or whether they're sensible or not, commitments the government has made have been translated and retranslated um, and sort of grown in the telling. Um, and at the same time, in December, both sides agreed to a text which didn't say the UK would have to stay in the whole single market and customs union in the backstop, but also recognised that the UK was leaving the single market and the customs union. And the EU may try and wiggle out of those paragraphs, but they mm -hmm. were, they, they agreed. They signed up to that they too. They signed up to that too. And, and those things were to a degree contradictory, but both sides agreed them. Mm -hmm. And um, on, a, on a related point about the sort of negotiating 
tactics. Do you think Britain's made a big mistake in terms of its approach to the no deal outcome? Uh, and we had this weekend, we had the sort of civil service um, Armageddon scenario. Um, but do you think by not taking no deal more seriously, it's kind of undermined its negotiating position? Yes, um, I think that's you know, the, the one area which you can make serious preparations for in the absence of an overall government plan for Brexit is no deal, because mm-hmm. that's, you know, the, that's, the, that's the sort of the contingency. Um, and we should have been from the very beginning making a whole uh, series of much clearer preparations. And it seems to me that uh, although at various points the Treasury has been forced into this. The reality is that they're not really serious about that. And of course, Brussels smells that. Um, and just on, a, on the actual substance of that, given that we've now sort of wasted this time, is it still, do you still think it's true that, I assume you once thought it was true, uh, that, that no deal is better than a bad deal? I mean, do you think we're now, it's, is it sort of too late for that to actually there, there work? There are obviously some circumstances when we would not be able to take the deal that was offered. And there's also, even if you don't accept that, um, there are there are also possibilities of um, where we could have an accidental no deal, where for a sort of combination of parliamentary circumstances or whatever else, an agreement is not reached, and then something else needs to, needs to happen. And I think the, uh, I mean, I thought the doomsday inverted commas scenario was was very far fetched, um, and, and 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 indeed, of course, it's sensible for Whitehall to point out problems that could could exist, but part of, presumably one level it's helpful that they are beginning to think about those problems so they can mitigate and plan for them um and of course it would be open to us uh, even in the event of no deal to relax various checks particularly on incoming uh, goods and, and make sure that you know we could keep as, uh, those to an absolute minimum it's also worth saying that no deal would be a very bad outcome for the other side as well and i, I don't want to we shouldn't be in a competition about who it would be worse for but it would clearly be very bad for many eu states in particular Ireland, but it would also be catastrophic for the EU's budget. So I think that it's, it's not, obviously it's not a scenario that anybody should seek, uh, but we should be planning for it. And of course, I think the Prime Minister made this point earlier today in PMQs, that there are things that you can do which are not just planning for no deal in the sense of wasted money, but things that you can, that those, are, that those are things that you may need to use anyway. So for example, upgrading our customs system. Of course, that's important in the case of Brexit, but it's also important for when we leave the customs union and control our own trade policy. If that's such a no-brainer then, to, why, what explains the lack of preparation for that? I think, I mean, I think it's uh, different cabinet ministers in charge of different departments not willing to countenance um, planning for no deal. Uh, I think it's also to do with the sort of the Overall, the overall strategic objective of Whitehall going into the December council meeting was to get a transition at all costs, um, and that included even whatever, almost whatever it was required to agree in terms of the Northern Irish border, which is how we ended up with a backstop. Um, and I think that there's that now this sort of conceit potentially in some places that the transition will definitely happen. And of course, the EU side is saying and busy writing to people saying, no, 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 no. Nothing's agreed until everything's agreed. There is no net transition unless uh, we come to agreement on the withdrawal. Uh, so I think that was, that's also part of the problem, that the transition has sort of fooled everybody into thinking that it will definitely be this additional period of time, and there may not be. But just one final question then. You, sure. you, you, there, may, there obviously is a possibility that it doesn't happen, but you're, if, you had to, if you had to sort of um, point at what you think is, is the most likely outcome, it's still some kind of it's a transition period followed by some sort of fudge along the lines of the sort of thing in your in your report uh i mean i would love this sort of thing in our report too. But, uh, by uh, which i mean you know by yeah, which i mean I a new be, a, a unprecedented deal i think there have to be some is, degree of that i think there'll be a lot of c- 
can kicking. I think it, you know we could end up with the backstop essentially becoming the front stop, particularly if the government loses votes on the customs union. Um, so I think we'll leave the EU in 2019. I think that's that's clear. Um, I think we will end up with a deal because I think the both sides do want a deal, much as the talks are in sort of uh, you know uh, in stalemate. I do think we'll get. I think it's overwhelmingly likely, that, although not certain, that we'll get a deal. Um, and I think there'll be the transition period, and then there'll be additional periods where we sort of phase our exit beyond that. And that may include a period where we stay in the customs union for a bit longer. Um, and that may include a period where we stay in goods alignment for quite a bit longer. Um, and I think at one level, lots of people who wanted Brexit will be very annoyed by that. But they also need to recognise that we've been members for over four decades and that leaving will be a process rather than a single event um, and that precisely because the EU affected so many aspects of domestic life and uh, other UK arrangements which of course was one argument why presumably Brexiters wanted to leave in the first place it is proving particularly difficult to unwind so I think at one level I'm sure lots of people would rather be out quicker but there's a hung parliament uh, it's a complicated process and I think uh, as long as the, the end state and the trajectory is clear, ultimately people should be willing to live with that. And that means, uh, you know, years and years of more Brexitology uh, from, from, from you. That's and uh, perfectly fine for <laughs> as far as Open Europe's concerned. <laughs> Henry Newman, thanks a lot.